0: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the power of the cross. Father, this is the remedy for our sin and us being separated from you and that you bridge this gulf of our sin and separation by the cross. By the the grace of God as you reach down with your express plan to rescue us. And we were your enemies, we acknowledge this, God. We are fallen We have have gone our own way. We have chosen to rebel. This was willful on our part. And yet willful on your part was that remedy. Jesus going to the cross and making a way where there was no way. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for this remedy of of our sin, of what we're going to talk about today. And I just thank you, Lord, that, that we get to spend eternity with you forever and ever. This is such awesome good news. Bless our time together. Speak to us by your Spirit. Speak to us through your Scriptures. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. So last week, the controlling question, if you will, was, what is man? And I started off with Psalm 8, what is man, that you were mindful of him? <laughs> uh, because David recognizes the place that man plays in the creation order of God. And the question is, why do you even care about us? And we would want to say, well, the reason why he cares about us is because we are so valuable and we're made in the image of God, blah, blah, blah. But there is a problem there. And that problem is a three-letter word called sin. This is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, If I were to go out into the world and I were to just ask people off the street, tell me your honest view of man, I would venture to say that they would look across the landscape of humanity and they would probably say something... Now, granted, there are going to be varying views, but generally speaking, they would probably say something like this. I see a lot of bad in the world. I see it on TV. I see it in my own life. But I would have to say that man is basically good. Okay? For the most part, man is basically good. And because man is basically good and valuable and does good things, therefore we should preserve man. And they would, they would probably even say that's why they are more important than animals, because there is goodness in them. And I, I want us to put that under the microscope today. I want us to ask this question again, what is man, and more specifically, is man basically good? Man was made in the image of God. We talked about the image of God, we couldn't be definitive, we could kind of describe it, we know that in Christ, that image, at least in character, is in the process of being restored, but... There is a problem and that we encounter in the in the third chapter of the book of Genesis that now plays a part in this image of God as it would be uh, manifest throughout humanity, and that is now not just the image of God, but it is a marred, a broken image of God by broken you know much like as you look in a mirror and it 's cracked all the way through, you can only see a vague image. It, you, have you ever looked at, and when I was a kid I would do this, but if there was a crack in a mirror, you kind of place yourself in there, mm-hmm. and it, it would skew your image, and and especially those types of mirrors in fun houses that are curved, yes. uh, you know, if it's curved this way or curved this way, you stand in front of the mirror and it makes you look either really short and fat or really tall and really skinny. So, you know, the guys would stand in front of one, the ladies stand in front of the other, and I'll guess guess—I'll let you guess which ones they stood in front of. But the idea is that they, it would distort your image. And this is what we have. We have this broken image, and it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And we would have to say that as, as we look through these scriptures, that man is not basically good. That there is a sin nature. Man sins. Man does what is wrong. And consequently, man is judged for this. What I want to do that. And let's... I'm getting ahead of myself here just a little bit, kind of stating somewhat of the conclusion of where we're going. But is man basically good? We're going to have to look at the scriptures to to discover this. There was a man back in the time of Augustine, around 400, actually. Um, he probably passed away around 420, no one's quite sure, but around 420 A.D. And his name was Pelagius. Pelagius uh, was very much opposed to Augustine's view a predestination very much opposed to Augustine's view of what he called original sin. And Pelagius believed this. Pelagius said, just as Adam was born with a free will to choose good and evil, so we have that same free will. Everyone is born with that free will and has the ability to do what is good. And so they have a blank slate. There is nothing that we have inherited from Adam. There is no judgment from God that we have inherited from Adam. The only thing we have inherited from Adam is a bad example. And I want to put that concept on trial right now. Is that true? Does that bear out in Scripture? When you look at a child and you see his disobedience, where does that come from? That is a question I would like to ask Pelagius, and I'm sure that Augustine and maybe some others have asked him that. When I look at a child and I see that willful disobedience, where does that come from? Are you trying to tell me that he does that only because it's been exampled to him? Is that a verb, by the way? Uh, I I would have to say no. That's not his mental process. Children can learn, looking at... uh, uh, Rusty, my grandson, and he's not even a year, and he is learning obedience. He is learning no touch, and so he does a pretty decent job of no touching. All right, um, you know, Juliana just the other day leaned over to him and said, Give, give Aunt, give Aunt Judy a kiss. And he quickly leaned over with this open mouth, oh, you're trying to, trying to <laughs> kiss her, you know, from what he understands what kissing is, and it was the most adorable thing in the world. And immediately, it was so funny in my in my family room. About six other people dashed over there and said, "Give me a kiss, (laughs) (laughs) Rusty," including me, including me. But it was just the most adorable thing. I mean, so children can learn. But when you see this willful rebellion and defiance, and even temper tantrums, is that because they've seen mom and dad throw temper tantrums? I'm going to have to say, no, there there is something inside of us. And I'm not going to blame the image of God, but I will blame the broken image of God in us. And so that begins to, just looking at things experientially, I would have to say that man is not basically good. There is something there that maybe by observation I can't quite put my finger on, but the scriptures do. So... Without any more ado, let's let's look at the Word of God. Let's see what it is that Scripture says to us. And as as you follow in your notes, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. By the way, in what is it, verse 9, we are told that there are two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. In the middle of this garden, those two trees are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, that's not the tree of of good and evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan's ploy in Genesis 3 was to deceive. God had said to them, in verse 17, let me actually read that for us here. It says, uh, well, let me back up with 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. So he speaks to Adam with this command, who incidentally spoke to Eve. And Eve is the one that's tempted uh, initially. But the Lord God's commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, Underline that word, die. Because we're going to need to unwrap that word a little bit as we move into chapter 3 so that we can understand it. Because we're, it's going to be a fair question, what does it mean to die? Alright, so this is the command. As we move, turn the page to Genesis 3. As we move into Genesis 3, <clears throat> we see a serpent, the personification of Satan himself. Um, and he comes to the woman while she's in the garden. And she asks, he asks, did God really say. Now, can I just say right up front, Satan's job will always be to undermine truth. He he even if it's to twist it just a hair off the mark. That's his goal. Just a little bit of error in truth can distort it and sometimes distort it completely. <laughs> he did that when he was tempting Jesus. He was quoting from Psalm 91 And he did a pretty good job of quoting it, except when he got to the end, uh, to keep you in all your ways. And he left that out because that is the human responsibility uh, phrase in that psalm. God will protect you to keep you in all of your ways. So don't go jumping off Temple peaks or or anything like this. And so that was the temptation. And that would not... Anyways... The goal here, that I'm, or the point that I'm making here, is that Adam will put little twists in truth to make it a half-truth, which is a falsehood. And so he asks this, you, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that a true question? Is that a true statement? That God said you cannot eat from any tree? What did he say? Do
1: not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Eat freely of the, other of the others.
0: Okay, which means that they could even, apparently, eat from the the tree of life. They could eat from any tree, just not that one that was in the middle of the garden. And so Adam conveys this to Eve. Now, it would appear that Eve did not grasp the entire command of God. She adds something to the very end. And that is, and don't even touch it. Now, it is possible that that was something God commanded Adam, and it's just not recorded there. I'm kind of thinking not, but it does seem that Adam, hearing God's command, himself may have, you know what, let's not even go near that thing. Don't don't touch it, just don't go near it. That is possible. But the strict command of God was, do not eat. And so, Satan's goal, at this point, the serpent's goal, is to deceive Eve, trick her, so that she sins. Why would Satan want to do that? He's
1: the father of lies.
0: It's his He's the father of lies. Lying is his native language. What else? else? Yes, why would Satan want to deceive Eve and introduce sin into humanity?
1: Brian? Man is made in the image of God, and so he's going to corrupt that image in any way that he can. Okay.
0: Women are gullible. Shh, careful there, brother. <laughs> <Just, laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> Maria.
1: He probably wanted to rule and reign because he his pride is what made um, him fall in the first place. Okay. He wanted to be God. <laughs> Okay, so he, he couldn't. Or as powerful as God.
0: So if he is not going to be the King of Heaven, he will be the King of Earth. We call him the Ruler or King of the Air. That is of this uh, this present age, and so he does rule over the kingdom of darkness. Who's in the kingdom of darkness? Yes, it's Satan is. So who, who is Anyone in the kingdom of darkness? I'm sorry.
1: Anyone not reconciled to God.
0: Anyone not reconciled again anyone who is still lost in their sin and outside of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they are under satan 's rulership, his domain okay so this is these are good answers. Um, man was the pinnacle of god 's creation. And I am sure that Satan, in wanting to get back at God and say, well, if you're not going to share your throne with me, I'll have my own throne here, and I will rule over the pinnacle of your creation and get back at you. And so he does that. He sets himself up as the, the king of this new empire, and he wants to see his empire grow, what king would not. And... And so this is what he does. And he starts here in the garden to extend his kingdom. He already has a third of the angels following him. Now he's going to have, his goal is anyway, to have all of mankind follow him. Jumping ahead just for a moment here, we come to Genesis 6 and we discover that Satan has succeeded in his plan. So that would, it would appear that only eight people in the entire population of the earth And people have actually kind of crunched some numbers here and figured there was there was probably a couple of million inhabited humans on the earth at the time of the flood. Um, I just kind of throw that figure out there for you, so you would not be mistaken to think only a few hundred. There were there were several hundred thousand, perhaps several a couple million, and all of them but eight did not follow Jesus. it's possible that Methuselah truly did follow the Lord. He died the year of the flood, so we don't find him on the ark. But we only find eight people on the ark. And the righteous would have been preserved, but only eight were. So do you, do you see then Satan's tactic of ruling over mankind has succeeded. And so God wiped out man. He brought his judgment well this is going to be the very nature of God the nature of his holiness that he must judge sin we can never accuse God of bad things that have happened that somehow we are innocent and undeserving and therefore he is unjust we cannot accuse God of that because we are, no one is innocent you probably read that passage or at least a couple of you did um, concerning man's unrighteousness and that he does not do what is good. So here we find in Genesis three the fall of man, and man seduces Eve or, or excuse me, Satan seduces Eve into believing that if she were to eat from this tree, this fruit on the that hangs from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, her eyes will be open <laughs> and she will be like who? God. Like God. Wasn't that the very thing that was in the heart of Satan? As we, uh, Actually, it was the singles that looked at uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, this past Friday night. We're looking at temptation. We started off on this series looking at who Satan is, who our adversary is full of pride, and those two passages seem to give us that that picture, and and especially in Ezekiel 28, a very clear picture. And so we see that that thing that was in the heart of Satan, pride, trying to be like God, um, that's spoken very specifically in Isaiah 14, and now we see it manifest here. This is his tactic. This is his goal. He wants to bring man and join him in this sin of pride. So... This this is his goal, and he succeeds. It, it, it suddenly becomes very alluring. Wow, why don't we? Why would God? Hmm, maybe God is not as good as we think he is. Maybe God is the proud one. Maybe God is trying to keep all of this good stuff from us, and this is not fair, and, and I'm kind of thinking through how Adam and Eve may have thought at the time, but they choose to take this fruit, they sin, and God brings judgment. Now, he brings judgment upon the serpent, upon the man, and upon the woman. Excuse me, the serpent, the woman, and the man in that order. And I'm going to suggest... Well, let me, let me not do that. When it comes to man, I'm just going to jump right into it. His promise is that if you take from the tree, you will, what again? you will surely die. Um, Does the King James say, in the day that you eat it, you will die? The NIV says, when you eat it, you will die. And so there is this immediate judgment that takes place. So can I ask you, did Adam and Eve both die that day? No. Okay. They did not fall to the ground with a stroke or... Anything like this, heart attack, they did not physically die that day. Okay. Does that mean that God was a liar? No. All right. I think we'd have to conclude that there is that death has now been introduced into the human race. Pelagius said that if man had not sinned, he still would have died. That is not what scripture tells us, by the way. The judgment upon man was this. From dust you came to dust you will return. That was part of the curse that would not have been upon man had he not sinned. Now, so let me suggest this. That even though Adam and Eve did not die that day, what was introduced into the the realm of God's creation is this idea of decay of... Uh, death within his creation realm. Um, I'm not going to dig into the nitty-gritties of this. We we could, but I'm going to refuse to say that. But I will say this, that man eventually dies, and it may very well be because of the corruption in the human genome. We do know, because as we we look at... I believe it's Matthew 19:28 he uses this phrase the regeneration or the uh the beginnings of things there's going to come a time in which in which uh we will in which God will remake everything and when when we say remake or recreate or rebegin what is that implying that's implying that at god's original creation or rather that god is going to go back to the original creation and and he's making things new that is paradise restored as the phrase is. and so i would suggest that had man not sinned man would have lived forever but now man is going to die all right And so I don't believe that God was saying the very day that you eat of it, you're going to drop dead. But the very day you eat of it, death will now be introduced and you will die. So we're talking about physical death here. That's important because there are many theologians today that say that physical death was not what was promised, but it was simply spiritual death. And I'm going to suggest, or categorically say, that it's both. And we're going to look at some other passage that would uh, emphasize this and teach this in the New Testament. But we can also see it in this passage. Again, the curse is, from dust you were made to dust you will return. That's a curse that implies, that speaks, not just implies, clearly states, you're going to die now as a result of your sin. But now let's look at uh, what he says afterwards. God made them garments. And in verse 22, he says, the Lord God said... The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He has sinned, he is in a state of fallenness, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Though up to this point he may have done that, but now he cannot do that and eat and live forever. What is the big deal? Wow, honestly, God, that sounds like a really great idea. Isn't it that you want man to live forever? To be in your presence forever? Why wouldn't you want them to take from this fruit? So why wouldn't God want to? Why wouldn't God want them to? The right
1: the right answer. <laughs> Maybe he just wants to show them that he is in charge. Like, he is in charge and they need to um, know that. And they need to obey him. Okay. okay. Because he is in charge.
0: Alright, we're, we're moving in the right direction, Juliana.
1: Well, because that was part of the punishment and if they were able to live forever physically then, then they wouldn't be experiencing what God had promised them as punishment and I think
0: okay. that if man did live forever in his sin then I think it would have been like even exponential growth of sin and okay. evil um, yes and those are good answers and it, 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 it's somewhat speculation but God does have a remedy and the remedy is eternal life, but it is not just living forever. Okay? Eternal life is more than living forever. And am a just pause right there. Do you understand that? That eternal life, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is more than just living forever. Eternal life is spiritual. It's not just a quantity of days that you live out. It is a quality. And we're going to now segue into this. There is a spiritual death that has taken place that living forever will not fix. Eternal life, which is more than living forever, will. But how then does man receive this eternal life? So as we're going to look in the next passages, man is dead in his sins and he must be made alive. This is God's answer for true eternal life. Not just eating from the tree of the knowledge excuse me, eating from the tree of life. Okay? So that he lives many, many days, a uh, infinite number of days. Okay, but there is a spiritual condition that needs to be fixed first. Okay? And it's it's and, and I'm looking ahead here to the cross. That is the answer, not the tree of life. The answer is found in the cross. Okay, statement? What was your question statement. Uh, why why did God forbid them to eat from the tree of life? I think okay. it was God's grace in that
1: because, of course, He knows the beginning from the end. But because they sinned and they tasted, you know, from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil from that tree. If they would have then tasted from the tree of life after that point, then they would have lived forever. And then God's grace, like the cross, was I just. When I read that, I'm amazed that God did not allow them to do that for their protection so that they would be redeemed on the cross.
0: Okay. So God does have a plan. That plan is not eating from the tree of life. The eating from the tree of life is an inadequate answer. And as Juliana, I think, well brought up, it would actually make things worse because they would live forever in this sinful state And sin would spread more rapidly, not only in their own selves, but amongst the generations to follow. Okay, and you will become even craftier in your sin as days go by. I mean, these are some suggestions that I think are helpful for us understanding this. But my point is that, there is, that they are expelled from the garden so that they will not do this. And we get this picture of now separation from God man no longer god no longer walks with man god no longer has this face to face communication as a matter of fact this is highlighted in numbers 12 you know god speaks to prophets through dreams and visions but i speak to moses face to face this is special why because god doesn't do that anymore why because sin has separated god from man god would walk you know anthropomorphically walk in the garden with adam and converse with him but that no longer is to happen there has been a brokenness in their fellowship a break and it is because of their sin so what we see here is death needs to be fu- to def- excuse me death needs to be defined f- from this passage as physical death and spiritual, and spiritual death. death we need to see that that is the death that has taken place so now <clears throat> excuse me let's move on to romans 12 um excuse me romans five twelve, and you can see that there are a number of passages in the book of romans that we're going to look at and rightly so because paul truly deals with this idea of the sinfulness of man so that the people that he the romans will understand then his the, the justification that comes through jesus that's where he's going with all of this and, and I'm tempted so much during this lesson to get into justification and the righteousness that's been revealed from heaven because we cannot come to the table with our own righteousness. Mm-hmm. We can't do that. Even when we're Christians, the, the, our, our, we cannot offer up our righteousness uh, mm-hmm. as, as for our justification, for something to, for God to smile upon and say, sure, come into my heaven. It must come through the cross, and our righteousness must come from God. Okay, we're going to get into that um, when we get into justification. We're going to touch on it maybe just a little bit here. But as we as we move to uh, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start with verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... Who was that one man? Adam. You mean it's not Eve. Okay, Adam was the one responsible. Even though Eve was the one who was deceived, it says Adam was with her. He was fully responsible. God spoke to Adam, not to Eve. Adam was the head. Adam was the one given the suitable helper, not Eve. So Adam was the one who stands before God and bears the responsibility ultimately for this fall. Okay, so that is what we're going to see here. Eve is not in the picture. Adam was the one called most fully to account for this sin. All right? All right. So, it entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So here's my question. Why do men die? We have, excuse me, I am going to write this up on the board, so i got to write this. Happy birthday, Maria. Alright, there we go. So here we have Adam, Sin, and over here I'm gonna put a lot of people, okay? That this is where I'm gonna put the law was introduced and we have death. Death reigning. Why did death Rain. Law is what calls people to account for their sin. So why is it that people still died? The answer is simple, honestly, and it tells us right there in the text, but I, I want to go deeper with it. Okay, The reason why they died is because they were sinners. But here's where I want to go with this. Why are they sinners if sinners why are they sinners if there is no law that they are held accountable to we would have to say that it is not just the acts of sin that we are looking at here but there is something underneath that and this is what this is what God this, this is what eventually makes them sinners But this is what God judges, okay? This is what Pelagius erased. And it is just acts of sin that is sin. Think about that. Before I go any further, what is sin? What is sin that, as a result, men die? But what is sin? Is sin merely Acts, Mm -hmm. thoughts, words. No. Okay. What is sin?
1: There's two kinds. It's the sin that you uh, have from not following commandments. Okay. But it's also that original sin that was put on us from Adam by God. So even before we commit a sin willfully or unintentionally, we still have that.
0: That comes with us when we're born. It's almost like a DNA. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to put up here Acts of Sin. And then I am going to put up here I, I'm, I am going to just cut to the chase. I am going to call it Original Sin. But This is what is under investigation. One, two. Alright. Now, you see the arrow, sinners, arrow, acts of sin, original sin. I'm going to change this around now, okay? Because this this is what Paul is getting at. It is not because we are sinners that we sin, or it's because we are sinners that we have original sin, but it is the other way around. Because uh, we sin, we are called sinners. Because of this sin nature... We are called sinners. So that's why I'm turning this arrow around. This is what Pelagius said absolutely not. We are sinners, yes, because of acts of sin, um, but not because of original sin. And so everybody like Adam can do good works, and it is possible for someone to live a completely righteous life and never sin, and that they could work their way to heaven. Now, there is really no writing from Pelagius that is available today. Um, People who want to defend Pelagius would say that it is only his uh, adversaries' writings, like Augustine, that are preserved today. And so it's really not fair to characterize Pelagius by what they said okay I I understand that but Pelagius was condemned and the church of his time had not gone apostate there were righteous men who understood the word and said no this is wrong and so Pelagius was accused of basically saying we do not need the grace of God to be saved it's a good thing It might be a help, but it's not necessary. Okay? Because we have internally the ability to do what is good and make good choices. And so he so emphasized man's responsibility and so emphasized good works that he began to erase the power of the cross, the necessity of the cross. And as a result... Um, he was a he was an ascetic, meaning um, he lived a life uh, depriving himself of things, but inherent is in asceticism is typically man 's distorted view that if I live this way, I will gain entrance into heaven. God will smile upon my denial of these things in life uh delicacies of food, and and you know, many times ascetics would wear um, uh, clothing. rough clothing. And they we see in the life of Luther, kneeling, crawling up the steps of the church, and you know, wearing uh, on his knees and, and scrapes and such, because that was harsh treatment of the body. Paul said harsh treatment of the body, means nothing it, it has no power to overcome sin in mm-hmm. at the end of colossians 2 and so it, it seems that how the church has characterized pelagius truly would be what he held to what he believed though at the end he tried to, to skirt around it no doubt because he realized that if he didn't he would be excommunicated as a heretic he was and i believe it was 418 ad but I believe in in a very for for very just reasonable reasons. All right. When we go this route, when we start erasing original sin, we have to be confronted by certain passages of scripture that would speak to the contrary. Okay. Um, number one, let's let's look at Psalm fifty one five. Um, can I ask what does your What do your notes say under original sin? Does it say Psalm 51.5? It
1: says 51.1. My apologies, yes.
0: Make that correction if you would. It is Psalm 51.5. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Would this imply any acts of sin? Can a fetus at conception sin? No. No. However, does that fetus have sin? Yes. Yes. Where did that sin then come from?
1: It comes through our DNA.
0: Okay. Um... I understand what you mean by DNA. I want to be careful. This is something that's spiritual. Um, What you're implying, though, is it's in our makeup. It's in who we are. It's not something that we're born with. It just like with (coughs) DNA. DNA dictates what we're going to look like and what our abilities will be, even as this sin dictates how we are going to act. We're going to act in a sinful way. So as a result, original sin, what we're talking about here, dictates that we're going to live a life of sin. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, in, in Psalm 58.3, it basically says something very similar, and it says, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Um, this is because there is something that is within them that compels them to sin. We have to see something behind these sinful actions. <clears throat> um, evidence
1: comes early.
0: Did you say evidence comes uh-huh. early? And and very true. Very true. What did you say? Evidence, evidence comes, comes early. early. early it comes appears early in, early in a child's life. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You can see that willful rebellion um look at Romans five. Let me make sure I'm not skipping ahead. Okay. Romans five fifteen. Romans five fifteen. It's not in your notes, at least I don't believe it is. Uh no. Romans five fifteen. It says this, but the gift is like the trespass. For if the many, that is mankind, for if the many died by the trespass. Of the one man how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many that gift is explained later in verse 17 as the gift of righteousness again I don't want to get into justification by faith um, though he does talk about it before here we need to understand that this that because Adam sinned and, was ju- and died, so because of his sin, I will die. And again, that death is not just physical death, it is spiritual death. Look at verse 18, consequently, in view of what's just been said, just as the result of one trespass, that came of course from Adam, was condemnation was you are guilty for all men. Wait a second. Okay. We're not just talking about physical death here. So now, because of Adam, I'm mortal and I will die. Now I am held guilty? That is what this verse is saying. Because Adam sinned, I am guilty. I am condemned. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Or let me say this, is now made available for all men. I'm going to get into why I'm interpreting it that way. Because universal, those who believe in universal salvation cling to this verse and the, the following with everything in them saying, Christ's one act of righteousness is death on the cross It it was sufficient to save all men. And that is not what Paul is saying here. And and we know this because he has already, in this very chapter, verse 1, told us so. He says, we have been justified through faith. Now just because he doesn't introduce faith here does not mean it's not there. So there is a qualification so it's made available to all men but men are not justified apart from faith okay so again i'm sorry this is this gets this really gets to me when people take scripture and they lift it out out of its context to prove a pet doctrine such as universal salvation and leave the other verses in the dust paul is building an argument here and it starts with the qualification of justification by faith and then he goes back again to talk about sin to now explain the need for Christ's righteousness All right, and so just because he he words it the way he does in verses 18 and 19 we need to keep in mind that justification is not applied to all of mankind it is available but is only applied to those who believe okay well, I said I wasn't going to do that, and I did it anyway. But th- that's that's where we're going to go when we talk about justification um, in the next trimester. Uh, we'll kind of unwrap that and, and then the need and the beauty of that. Okay, so what we have here then... Uh, oh, there is... Okay, let's now dig into this... I, no, there was another passage. Okay, yes, chapter 7... I'm going to keep this under original, the heading of original. originals. Luke 7, verse 20. We know... I'm going to... Well, I'm sorry. Luke seven twenty. Let me get my bearings here. Here we go. Now, if I do what I do not want to... It is no longer I who do it, but what is it living in him that does it?
1: I'm sorry, Luke 7?
0: No, Romans? Did I say Luke? Yes. Wow, how did that come out? That means what (laughs) you (laughs) think Romans 7.20. Those who are listening to this online, yeah, Romans 7.20. All right, so now that you're at Romans 7.20 instead of Luke 7.20, let me read this again. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is what living in me that does it? Sin. It's sin. Is that sinful acts living in me? No. That, That doesn't even make sense. It is sin. Sin is... Sin, you kind of view it... This sin is this poison within our system that causes us to be sick, okay? And, and well, I guess keeping with the analogy, live sickly. So, it is, but it is that poison in us. It is that sin in us that then causes us to... It is this original sin. And this sin, Paul even tells us where it's located. He says, verse 18... I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, in my sinful nature. Okay. So, we, we need to distance ourselves from this teaching that seeks to undermine original sin and man is only held accountable for his acts of sin and is judged only for his acts of sin and only as a sinner because of his acts of sin... No, we are sinners, we are judged and held accountable for the sin nature that we have, for the sin living in us that causes us to sin, to to do sinful actions. So let's unwrap this this link between this sin in us, this sinful nature or original sin that now causes us to do sin. I mean, can I just... Decide, as, as an unbeliever, as unregenerated, can I just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm not going to sin. Regardless, you know, e- even though this, you know, there's original sin in me, if I could somehow agree with that truth, I'm going to say, no, I have free will, and I am not going to sin. Can a person do that? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, and let's put that question under the microscope and look at it paul in his uh treatment because where he's going in this is the revelation of the righteousness from heaven and why god had to impute jesus righteousness unto us that is the righteousness revealed to us from heaven talked about in chapter one he has to lay the groundwork of sin the sinfulness of man and to do that he, he takes a number of quotes from the Old Testament and he lays them out here in chapter 3. And my only, what I just want us to see, right now, I want us to see verse 10. And he says, as it is written, that is, he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Do you see that at the end of verse 9? Mm-hmm. They're all under sin. To be under sin means that you are under the power and authority. That's what, it's the word kupa, it means under, it means you are subject to its power and authority. Those outside of Christ, Paul tells us in his own personal testimony in Romans 7, that he was under law. He also mentions that in chapter 6. That means, because he was a sinner, he was condemned by the law... And he was at the law's mercy. He was under the power and the authority of the law. And the only way in Romans 7 that he says you can come out from under the law in this way is by death. That is our, us dying to the law and being regenerated in Christ. Now I realize I'm skipping ahead here, but that, when he's saying under sin, we need to understand that word under to mean under the power, the influence, the authority of sin. Sin is in control here. How do we know this? So he quotes rather extensively from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Wow. No one is righteous? There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They are all together become worthless. That Greek word "they're worthless, also means useless or unprofitable. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Wow. So you mean to tell me, Paul, that when I look around the world and I see these acts of love, that they're really not acts of love? That when I see what appears to be righteous, good acts, that they're not righteous, good acts? Is this what he is... Is this really what you're saying? Can I just tell you this? That... Let me just give you an an analogy here. Um, Hmm. That might be a little over the top. Okay. Um... How many of you would accept delicious food from, from a nurse who, not wearing gloves, just handled a patient with staph infection?
1: Oh, nobody. Oh. Would you eat so that food? Disgusting. But it's no.
0: delicious food. Why no. wouldn't you do that? Why you, wouldn't you do that?
1: You run the risk of getting <coughs> this
0: Okay, why is that?
1: Ew. <laughs> I'm asking
0: an obvious question, but...
1: It spreads okay. from,
0: from her to us. My poison, or, or the, the staph infection, I'm going to call it poison to stay with the analogy of sin, that poison, if you will, has infected this good thing and has now made it, though it looks good, it's not. Though on the surface, these righteous acts look righteous and look good, they are tainted by this sin that causes us to be sinners. In fact, to the point where everything outside of Christ that I do is tainted with this sin and it's very fair to say no one, not even one, does what is good. It's all impure. But man, that food looks so good. It's prime rib. Oh man, let me just sink my teeth into it and get staph infection. Okay, that's up to you. But it's been tainted. All right? This is what um, this is what Calvin called total depravity. Now, total depravity is more than this, but total depravity is does not mean that everyone. And I'm going to use this analogy of a glass of water. Um, that everyone is drinking a glass of arsenic, meaning everyone is filled with sin, totally depraved in this way. That is is not what this concept of total depravity means. It means that a teaspoon, if you will, of arsenic has been stirred into that glass so that that arsenic has affected all of the glass of water and still you would not drink it. Anyone who would drink that glass of water? No takers here. Didn't think so? Uh, Okay, if you would like. The truth is that even though it's a little bit It affects everything, just like the yeast affects the whole lump. But in a negative way, this our sin nature affects everything that we do, everything that we we think. Scripture doesn't just leave it at that. Turn with me to Romans 6. Paul digs in even deeper in describing the effects of sin. And in verse 6 he says, For we know that our old self or old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be what? Slaves Slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. This original sin, this sin nature, Paul is saying we're a slave to that. So that everything that we do is not just tainted by sin, but the sin, it actually controls me now. So the person who wakes up, unregenerated, wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm going to do what's good. Well, welcome to New Year's resolutions and the fact that everybody breaks new New Year's resolutions, okay? Because there is something in him, we call it sin, that will not permit him to do this. It's not just that they will be tainted by sin, but now we get this picture, we are being mastered and controlled by sin so that we are sin's slave. And we cannot break free from this. I don't care what your intentions are and how good they are. You cannot throw these shackles off. You are bound and within your own power, you do not have the ability to set yourself free. And so this is the power of the cross. This is why Jesus had to die Because the power of the cross is such that it breaks those chains of sin, it sets us free, so that we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin does not have, we do not have to submit to sin as it were our master. We can walk in freedom, okay? We can walk free from sin. This is the promise that we have, but we must walk in the Spirit to do that. right. So, statement question?
1: Yes. It, this is why... This is what the Catholics fear and why they baptize babies so early. Okay. They they hmm? want to get rid of this original yes. sin, but that's why the Protestant faiths do not, because by and large, they mostly believe that the person has to make that choice of themselves no <laughs>
0: and
1: Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the Roman Catholics do believe, and it goes back to Augustine, that if you baptize a child, then you are washing away original sin. All right? This is not the case. Uh, baptism does not regenerate us. Baptism is that symbol, that picture of our regeneration, but that is all that it is, and it does not affect our salvation. Now, can I just say in defense of those who do baptize outside of the Roman Catholic Church, those who do baptize infants, they do not do it because they believe they're washing away original sin. Um we're gonna get when we look at baptism in the uh third trimester, we're gonna understand uh the Reformed View and others who hold I shouldn't just say Reformed View. Um but those who baptize infants, apart from the Roman Catholic Church, do so for a different reason that I don't want to get into right now. But in all fairness to them, it, it's, it would not be for that reason. Um, so here we get a picture that man is a slave to sin. And as we turn, and this is again what John eight thirty four states, that we, Jesus tells us that those who sin are a slave to sin. He's telling these Jews, you're slaves. Hmm. What? We're not slaves, we're free. Oh, no, you're not. Mm-mm. Sin has enslaved you. Ephesians two one. And Wow, what a temptation to just camp out in this passage of 1 to 10, but obviously can't do that. I want to focus just on verse 1. It says that we were dead, or as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. <coughs> it goes on in which you used to live, when you walked, when you used to live, uh, when you followed. The, let me just back up. In which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. Satan is at work in those who are disobedient. Satan is at work in those who have, at this point, chosen to reject Christ, because they are dead in their transgressions and sins. So we are not just slaves to sin. We are dead in our sin. Okay? What we have here then is a picture of the captivity of man. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes speaking directly to this issue. Martin Luther, obviously a Lutheran, um, the father of Lutheranism, um, he believed, and he wrote a book called "The Bondage of the Will." And his statement was, in trying to understand that, because he was he was he wrote it in response to Erasmus that believed it had a very skewed view of free will, uh, very similar to Pelagius. And Luther felt compelled to address this because if he didn't then people would not understand justification by faith and the need for this. So the title of the book was The Bondage of the Will, and it speaks to this issue that even though we might state we have free will, the truth is the will is in bondage to our sin. And we would understand it that even though you have free will and you can make choices because of the sin in us the choice that we will always make is sin and will be tainted by sin okay so this is the bondage of the will this therefore when you when you understand that slavery to sin and a slave cannot just break his chains, cannot just break away from his master on his own volition. A slave must be bought in order to be freed. Uh, again, the cross, by his blood, we have been redeemed, washed of our sins, and that is the answer to this slavery that we are talking about here. Um, so Ephesians 2.1 speaks to us being dead in our sins. Let's go back to Romans. And I'm going to touch on two more verses, and we're going to wrap it up. I want to... You have down here Romans seven fourteen to 25. Do you have in parentheses more in-depth later? Yes. Okay, good. I'm only going to touch on the first verse. Um, there has been debate about this passage... Uh, Luther and Calvin heading the way, believing that this referred to a regenerated believer. This is Paul as a regenerated person. I take a different view of this. I believe this is Paul speaking about a principle of sin, though he uses the present tense and he uses the pronoun I. He is still referring to a principle here. And when we actually look at this passage later in depth, uh, I'm going to point out 12 reasons why I, I believe this. And those reasons, personally, I believe, are very significant for us in order to understand what it truly means to be in Christ and all of the inheritance and the implications of this. And to take a different view will tend to undermine that. And so I I, I feel strongly about this for that reason. Okay. Now, let's just look at this first verse. And this is just one reason why I take issue with Luther and Calvin on this, and many godly men by the way. But I, I believe that it is a it's it's a battle worth fighting, it is a battle worth truly understanding this passage that we're going to try and do later because of what's at stake. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold under sin. NIV says sold as a slave to sin. And that concept of being sold under sin would certainly imply that. But literally it means sold under sin. What does that word hoopah under mean again? It means that we are we are subject to its power and authority. He uses this phrase, this that word under earlier with regard to, in chapter 7, those who were under law, he says we are not under law anymore. We are under grace. We are under the power and the authority of grace now, not the law. The, The law led us to Christ and led us out from under the law to see our need for Christ, and as we embrace Christ, we're no longer under the power and the authority of the law in that it... Killed us. It highlighted our sin. But because that sin's taken away, that influence and that death that the law brings to bear on us is not there anymore. Because our sins are forgiven, we are now under grace, meaning we are under the power and the authority of grace. And so I would submit to you that when he says that uh, sold under sin, this truly cannot be a believer because they are not sold Sold implies a new ownership. Do you understand that? When you purchase something, ownership transfers from one person to the one who is giving the money. For us to be sold under sin means an exchange that has taken place so that now, if I am sold under sin, sin owns me. And that cannot be. That is... Theologically impossible for a Christian to be sold under sin. So I, I don't want us to kind of water down this word sold or tame it a little bit to imply, well, what he's really trying to say is we are, he's under the influence of sin. That is not what that verse, that passage, that phrase is saying. Sold under sin. We have a clear picture of slavery here that, we, that through the cross we've been freed from. So if we go back to our sin, it's not that we are slaves to sin anymore. But as I mentioned earlier in, in a sermon, uh, we have been, the chains have been, uh, they've been broken. The prison cell has been unlocked, the door flung open. It's up to you if you're going to sit on the floor of that cell or not, but you are not a slave. You can, by the power and the authority that you have in Christ, walk out of that prison cell. But you can make that choice you do have by Christ the power and authority over that sin so that you can walk free from it. But you must do so by the uh, the available power of the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5, being led by the Spirit, etc. So this is available to us. And so the picture of the unbeliever, which I believe Paul is saying here, they are sold under sin. Now, I want to come back to this concept of total depravity. Man, I am out of time. Well, tell you what, since we started a few minutes late, I am going to go a few minutes over. All right. (laughs) I'm sure you don't mind that. Turn with me to Romans 3. Here's where I would need to part company with Calvin. In Calvin's understanding of total depravity, he not only said that is our free will, and he would say free will, would be a, mis- a misnomer. And he, I, I would I understand that and empathize with what he is saying there. Because in a sense our will is free, but on the other hand, the choice, is, the choice is but one. And that one is sin. We can only do sin. But our, our our will... So though our will is free, it is in bondage. Now, Calvin took it to the point in which he said, not only is man a slave to sin and he is in, in his will is in bondage to sin but this would mean then that man's man is not able to seek god and man is not able to believe god in god that man is not able apart from god's regenerating work being dead to being made alive Apart from that, man cannot believe. Now, we're going to look at this um, next week when we look at uh, God's grace with respect to salvation and this concept of prevenient grace. Um, I I don't take the Arminian view of this, but I don't take the Calvinist view of of this. Um, Here's where, though, I part company with Calvin. When he says that when he defines total depravity... He means that man cannot believe in Jesus Christ. He must first be born again in order to believe. Now this is where I part company from him, and I'm going to explain this next week, but he, in in part, he bases it on this passage, among others, of course, but... What verse is the, it? Again? What verse? Eight, eight, uh, 7.14. I'm, I'm not 714. sure what you're saying. The, the passage that we looked at prior was 7.14, yes. Yeah. But this one right here is Romans 3, verse 11, where it says, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Case closed for Cal, uh, for, for John Calvin. Case closed. You can't even seek God because your your will is in bondage. Let's be fair with the text here. Okay, I want you to write I'm going to do my best to put it up on the board here this word this word for seek there are two words very related to one another that are translated seek this one here is the word um, ek zateo Ek uh teo. Okay. Let me just make sure okay. Exateo means to earnestly seek. Earnestly seek. There is another Greek word called zeteo. That simply means to seek. ex zeta-o would be a heightened form, a more intense form of zetao, And the question, that the Calvin's conclusion was that fallen man can't do this. They can't, earnest, they can't seek God. But in all fairness, no, fallen man can't earnestly seek God it's not that they can't seek after him, it's that they can't earnestly seek after him. And this is true. Only believers can truly, <coughs> earnestly seek after God. There is Because they have been regenerated and they have been brought to life, now there is this, this compulsion, if you will, to pursue God. And it's because of the Spirit in them. But does that mean that they can't even seek after God at all? Actually, Scripture tells us that's not the case. And so if you'll turn to Acts chapter 17, excuse me, um, Acts chapter 15, verse 17. I'm sorry, which, which word was read? hang a on one quick second here. Okay. There are actually two scripture passages that I'm gonna give you. Um in X uh, 1727. Acts 17. 27. Acts 17. Here we find this word zeteo and it is in the context of mankind in general who is unregenerated. And it says this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's verse 26. 27 then continues, He did this so that men would zateo him, would seek him, and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So is it possible for unregenerated men to seek God? god yes it is i think it's unfair for us to draw a conclusion that he cannot that he cannot therefore place faith in jesus christ the the, the so here's my conclusion though our will is in bondage there is still that ability to have faith in jesus christ um We have to be careful when we start defining faith. Because if we're not careful, in the writing of Calvin, it can certainly seem as if he is saying faith is a good work. And man can't do anything that's good. And we have to say, no. No, faith is not a good work. Is it a good thing? Okay. Are we going to split hairs here? That there's a difference between a good thing and a good work. We have to be careful. We are not saved by good works. This is in contradistinction to faith. And so we have to say faith is different than that. So, it is not... Paul is not saying that unregenerated man can't believe in God apart from God regenerating him. This is not what he is saying. Unregenerated man... Can seek God. I, I call this man's pilgrimage in his salvation. He is beginning this pilgrimage in seeking God, reaching out, and in a sense finding Him, though certainly it would perhaps better be worded God finds us, because we were lost and now we are found. Okay? And so, but in this context, he is talking about finding God as far as discovering truth. And so I'm going to say this, man can seek God. He, Unregenerated man can't seek God with this earnestness that the regenerated can. That is what Paul is saying. Unregenerated man can't do good works like the regenerated can, whose... Who's, um, food that they would offer you has not been tainted by staff infection if you follow the illustration. And that is because of Christ. We stand before God as now in Christ's righteousness there is no guilt and he places the stamp of righteous upon us. So, next week we're going to be looking at this a little bit more in depth um, but we're gonna, what we're going to do is we are going to look at man's conversion and the grace of God that bears on this conversion. And we are going to see the absolute necessity for God's grace even bringing about, bringing us to that point of faith. And, and we're going to see this uh, unfolded and... Um, honestly a, a, a powerful exciting truth um, as, as we do that so let me close a question comment?
1: yes next week we're still meeting here correct
0: uh, yes and that will be our last one and then after that we are going to be meeting wednesday nights picking up february 10th in the second trimester but next week will be our last Sunday, and we're going to be speaking directly to this issue of God's grace in salvation. Okay? Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you that in and of ourselves, we are lost, we're in bondage, we're slaves, and we definitely have needed to be rescued. So, Jesus, thank you that when we cried out to you, you indeed rescued us and you lifted us up out of the miry clay and you set our feet upon a new rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. And you have washed us clean and you have set us free to live in newness of life. The old man, the old way, the old me is crucified and I am now empowered to live for Jesus. God, would you help us as we do that, as we live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.